You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. This is chapter 1. I'm just going to read two verses, verse 26 and verse 27. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds, and the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Let's pray together. Father, we really do come now in desperation, and we come with great expectation. We come expecting, we come desperate because... We realize that apart from you, there is no life. So we come desperately dependent on you for all things. And we come at expectation, expecting that right now, through your spirit, that as we dive into your word, it's just as powerful as if you were standing here speaking it. And we know that your word does not return void. So we come expecting you right now to do something in our hearts that we cannot do for ourselves. And so we ask right now, through your spirit, that you will take this word, drive it into our hearts transform us as a church for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As most of you know, um, my wife is pregnant with our third child. And so a few weeks ago, we went to the doctor just for a regular checkup. And when we walked into the waiting room, it was cram-packed full of people. Uh, A lot of pregnant women, some with their husbands or boyfriends or whatever. And so we sat down, finally found a spot. And what I noticed is though the room was full of people, like nobody was talking. It was silent. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And so I looked around and to no surprise, you know what I found everybody doing? On their phones. That's right. You know, just sitting there scrolling through. And so in a non-creepy way, I kind of began to look at some people's phones that were around me to see what exactly is so entertaining. What is they really need to be looking at right now rather than talking to the person they're talking to? And, 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 and probably to no surprise of many of you, you know what they were on? They were on Facebook, right? Like, we all know that. And so I begin to think about, like, man, I wonder how much time we spend on Facebook, how many people are on Facebook. And so uh, I came across some statistics on uh, the Internet, and here's what I found out. Right now, there are currently 1.6 billion people on Facebook. That's with a B, billion people. Of the 1.6, there are 1.44 billion monthly active users. And of the 1.44 billion, 936 million people use Facebook every single day. On average, other countries spend at least 20 minutes a day on Facebook. But in America, we blow that out of the water. We double that. According to Facebook's Q2 earnings, we spend on average as Americans 50 minutes a day mindlessly scrolling through Facebook. Think about that. Almost an hour a day. So like eight hours a a, a night or seven hours we're sleeping. Seven to eight, nine, ten hours we're working. And somehow in between all that, between running errands and getting our kids where they need to be going and all that kind of stuff, homework, we're finding an hour to connect on Facebook, right? To stalk the lives of our friends, right? To see not only the gazillions of pictures they post of their children, but also what they are eating, where they are going, and what they are thinking. As I thought about that this past week, these statistics reminded me of the truth that no matter who you are or where you come from, we all long to be in community. 
Uh, We long for relationships. We long to be connected to others, to have our lives in some way overlapping with another group of people. And what I submit to you this morning is the reason that is, is because the Bible tells us God made us for relationships. He made us for community, to be connected to one another. If you look again in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that when God created, he said, let us make man in our image. Now, we've talked a lot about this in the past. Whenever God says, let us make man in our image, the us that he's referring to here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So right here in creation, what we see is this relational God, this God who's three in one, who has existed in a perfect relationship from eternity past, and this relational God begins to create. And when he creates, he says what? Let us make man in our image. In other words, let's make man, let's make humans to mirror to the world what I am really like. And so therefore, what does God do? This relational God creates us as a relational people. He creates us to dwell in community by relating to and loving one another in a way that will image, that will mirror what he is like to people around us. So here's what that means. Listen to this. What that means is no matter where you find yourself on the DISC or the Myers-Briggs personality test, uh, no matter who you are or where you come from, if you are here today and you are a human, which I think is all of us, you're created in the image of God. And therefore, because our God exists in a web of relationships, he created you to exist in a web of relationships. Now, for some of you, you're like, oh, that's awful news, Right? Because I, I know for some of us in here, you're, you're like me, you're an extrovert. How many extroverts are in the room? Raise your hand, right? Oh, really? <laughs> That's an extrovert right there. Yeah. And so an extrovert is someone who, who loves being around people. They actually draw energy from being around people. For some of you, you don't draw energy from being around people. You draw energy from being by yourself, right? With maybe a book. Oh, and you married an extrovert. That's great, Ilana. And so that's awesome. That's the way it works sometimes, right? And so, um, anyways, I was gonna, I won't go there. Okay, so, yeah, some of you in here, incredibly extroverted. Some of you, incredibly introverted. Some of you, like, your idea of hell is not fire and brimstone. It's like a social event, Right? Where like people are just bothering you and just around you all the time, right? And so whenever you hear someone get up here and say that you exist for relationships, it feels, right, there's some tension inside of you. Like, no, I don't think that's true, but I'm telling you, yes, it is. Whether you are introverted or extroverted, all of us in here are created in the image of God and therefore we're created as a relational people. Leslie Newbegin, a guy who's much smarter than me, says it like this. Interpersonal relatedness belongs to the very being of God. Therefore, there can be no salvation for human beings except through relatedness. No one can be made whole except by being restored to the wholeness of that being in relatedness for which God has made us. In other words, at the center of Christianity is relationships. Because at the center of Christianity, what do you have? You have God the Father sending God the Son to come and be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a perfect life that none of us can ever live, to then die a death on a cross that we deserve to die for our sins, and then he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell through the power of the Spirit. And then what the Bible tells us is that before Jesus went to be back with his Father, he then sent us the Holy Spirit. 
So that when we trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, think about this, we can now be entangled in the love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can experience that love through the Spirit and then extend that love to one another. This is the way God created us. However, the problem is, we live in a world where there's this thing called sin. And sin is the enemy to all relationships. If you don't believe me, look to Genesis chapter 3 real quick. Flip over one page. It's on page 2 in my Bible. So if that helps you. Genesis 3, God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in a garden to exist in this harmonious, beautiful, perfect relationship with each other and with God. He tells them, you can have whatever you want, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, surely you will die. But Adam and Eve, and this is what sin is, by the way, decides, you know what? I know better than God. I'm going to do things my way rather than God's way. And here's the result. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the sound of the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. The woman you gave me, she, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, this is, his, this is her fault. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? By the way, notice, man, that God does not disagree with Adam. Okay? I'm just saying. That preaches, brother. <laughs> Ladies, I'm just kidding. But he really doesn't disagree, just for the record. And so... Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And as you know, the story goes on and we see the consequences of their actions. Here's the point I want to make. When sin enters the picture, what's the first thing that it screws up? Relationships, right? Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. That's not just physical nakedness. That's emotional. That's spiritual. I mean, there was no closed doors. There was no hiddenness. There was no secrets. It was a perfect, unified relationship. They're on the same page. They're walking with God in the cool of the garden. How amazing is that, by the way, that our God wants to have a relationship with us by design, and yet they screw it up. They sin against God, and immediately it fractures their marriage. They put fig leaves on. They hide from one another, and they hide from God. As we continue to look through the story, we see because of sin, relationships unravel. Eventually, Adam and Eve have these two boys, Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain gets jealous of Abel. He kills his own brother. You go to the next story, you see a guy named uh, Lamech who actually was the inventor of polygamy. He begins to take all these wives for himself. He doesn't really keep marriage between just one man and one woman. He takes all these different ladies for himself. He goes on to be a murderer and writes songs about how great of a murderer he is. As you go through Israel's history, you see divorce, you see wars, you see backbiting, you see all kinds of relational dysfunction. And you see, this is the world that we are born into. So what that means then is, listen, all of us in here are born desiring relationships. But all of us know how difficult relationships can be. So there's a desire, but there's a difficulty. And because of that, the difficulty at times, maybe even for some of you, begins to crush out that desire. And we therefore miss out on the life that I believe God has created us to experience. Now here's the good news. 
the rumors are true. Jesus really did come to redeem and restore relationships. Jesus has come and through his life, his death and resurrection, the Bible says, taken us from being enemies of God to now able to be his children. We're able to walk with God again. We're able to go from being far from God to being a part of the family of God where we can experience once again the love that he has for us and then to the power of the Spirit, love each other as he has loved us. God is creating this whole new family that is marked by love. And Jesus talks about this. If you look, flip over to the New Testament, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And by the way, let me just say this. I don't know if this is helpful for anybody, but one of the reasons um, I still bring my Bible is because I am so connected to my phone so much. It's just kind of a, it's a way to kind of break the norm for just a little bit of time, put my phone away, dive into the Word. And so if you have a Bible, I always encourage you, bring it, open it up, look at it. If you don't want to do that, that's fine as well. So, but anyways, it's just something that, that helps me. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 It says, uh, Jesus is talking to a group of people, and it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Hey, uh, Jesus, your, your mom and your brothers are outside, and they're seeking you. And look how Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Isn't that a bizarre? I mean, imagine you're sitting there, and Jesus, God in the flesh, says, Who's my mother and my brother? It'd be like, uh, Jesus, your mother's Mary, your brothers, it's Judas and Simon and Joseph. That's your brothers? You okay? <laughs> Who's my mother and my brothers? It's a rhetorical question because look what he says next, verse 34. And looking at those who sit around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Translation. I have come to this earth not just so that you can have a personal relationship with God. I've come to create a whole new kind of family. To create a family that's not primarily centered around biology, but that is centered around me. This theme actually moves throughout the entire New Testament. There's a whole slew of verses we could look at to talk about how God is making us into a family, into brothers and sisters in faith. But just one of them, for example, Galatians chapter 3. I'll put it on the screen for you while I flip there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. Listen to what Paul says here. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Ladies, don't get caught up on that son's language. That might seem like, well, well it's not really gender neutral. The whole point of, of, of Paul calling all of you, men and women, sons of God, is in this culture, women actually kind of got the shaft when it came to whenever like your dad would die, he would leave his inheritance with his sons. He would assume if you're his daughter, you're going to be taken care of later on down the road by another man. The sons would get the inheritance. What Paul says is now in Christ, you're all sons. You're all getting God's inheritance. You're getting the full amount. What is true of Jesus is now true of you. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is now, he says, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying here, whether you're an American or a Middle Eastern, whether you're Chinese or you're Hispanic, whether you're rich or you're poor, you're black or you're white, you're Democrat Democrat or Republican, if you are a follower of Jesus... 
If you are trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you are now a child of God. You are a part of the family of the creator of the universe. And therefore, if we are children of God, what does that make you and I? Brothers and sisters. Literally, that makes us family. And again, this is pressed throughout the entire New Testament. Do you know that in the New Testament, whenever it describes the people of the church, do you know how it describes them? Well, three times when describing the church, it uses the word Christian. 240 times, it uses the word disciple. But when it comes to describing the church, it uses the word brother or sister 342 times. Why is that? Because the New Testament is just so clear. It wants us to see the church is not primarily a building. The church is not an event. It's not some sort of social club. At its very essence, the church is the family of God called to love one another as God has loved us. Unfortunately, in the religious South, we receive a totally different message growing up. That's why some of us, we say so often, I'm going to church, I'm going to church. I mean, it's just been programmed in us, and we don't think about it. We think of the church as a place that we go. And because of that, whenever it comes time to look for a church you want to get your family involved in, what's like the number one thing you look at? What happens here on a Sunday morning at an event? Like, like that's the way we judge like whether we should be a part of a church or not. Does it have music I like? Does it have preaching I like? And does it have a kid's program that my kids like? like? That's what we are looking for. And because so many pastors in the religious south have even bought into this, like we just say, hey, that's all we really expect from you. To be honest, if you want to be a rock star Christian and church member, here's all I want from you. Show up at all of our events. Show up on Sunday morning. If you have a Sunday night service, a Sunday night, a Wednesday night service, show up on Wednesday night. Serve in the nursery, wipe a few bottoms, give some money, right? Sing the songs, and then look, throughout the rest of the week, when I say amen and we dismiss, just go do your own thing. And I'll see you all here again next week. Guys, that's an Americanized version of Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. Like, what that looks like, it looks more like my son's t-ball team than it does like the church. What I mean by that is, is like this past year, me and Luke and Zach Baker, Michael Dees, we coached a t-ball team. And you know what we did at the beginning of the year? We said, hey, kids, parents, here's the schedule. Show up at these games. And they did. That's the way some of you view the church. Hey, what's the schedule? Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. Okay, a prayer meeting. Okay, a hayride. Saturday, whenever that is, 5 o'clock. I'll be at those events. And then we just kind of live however we want throughout the rest of the week. What I want you to hear is, guys, listen, Sunday mornings, are th- is this important right here, what we're doing? I hope so. If not, why are we doing it? Right? Like preaching the word is important. Singing songs like our band did. Praise God for our praise band, man. How awesome that they do every single week. Every week, every week they come up here and they practice and they lead us. Like this is not in vain. This is all a wonderful thing. But listen, if you're... If your walk with God is limited to just a Sunday morning gathering, I'm telling you, your walk with God is suffering. You cannot, I promise you, you cannot, according to the Word of God, experience a a healthy, vibrant Christian life by just showing up here once a week and then going and doing your own thing throughout the week and then coming back here and hitting repeat. The reason some of you are constantly on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and you're still lonely is because God created you for more. 
He created you for relationships. It's sin that gets in between that. It's sin that keeps us from experiencing that to the fullest. In the book Slow Church by Christopher Smith, he writes this about churches in America, about Christians in America. Instead of cultivating a deep, holistic discipleship that touches every aspect of our lives, we have confined the life of faith to Sunday mornings where it can be kept safe and predictable or to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which can be managed from the privacy of our own homes. Following Jesus has been diminished to a privatized faith rather than a lifelong apprenticeship undertaken in the context of Christian community. Maybe this defines some of you this morning. You're defining, you're confining your faith simply to a Sunday morning experience. And please listen to me. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about that this morning. What I am trying to say is you're missing out. You're missing out on a deeper and fuller life that God has for you. You're missing out on what it means to be fully human. You're missing out on the life that Jesus himself is calling you into. And so therefore, here's my call to you this morning. If you're here and you're just coming on Sunday mornings, you're not yet connected to this family, the call this morning is get connected. The best way for you to do that is by getting involved in a missional community. And we say a missional community here, it is what? A family of missionary servants. If you're like, well, what in the world do they do in a missional community? Well, we just try to live in love like Jesus together. The way that we do that is at least once a week we come together and we eat a meal. Right? We pray together. We share highs and lows together. We try to bless the city in unique ways together. We fight our sin together. And then we come together, right? This right here is a, a group of missional communities who come here together and we sing together. We listen to preaching together. We serve together. We give together. We take communion together. Guys, listen, this is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to experience the life that God has created us to experience. And I know for some of you, you hear that and it's like it's super intimidating, isn't it? For those who are introverted, I mean, it's kind of a scary thought. For some of you, you've tried community and you've been hurt by it, haven't you? You've been wounded in relationships. And the last thing you want to do is make yourself, you know, to put your heart out there and allow it to be hurt again. For some of you, you're incredibly busy right now. And what scares you is like, man, if I'm going to get involved in community, I'm going to have to give something up in my schedule. And that gets scary. Change is scary. For some of you, you just don't want to be known. You're like, man, if people really knew me, like they would think like I'm weird they would think I'm not very spiritual or I'm not a great parent. And listen, I get that. Not that like I'm saying you're weird. Like I get that, that, like, that, 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 that feeling. I mean, think about this. We could have started this church any way we wanted to, right? Nobody told me how to, die, how to do this. I could have done it any way I wanted to. And we literally started with one missional community. We started by trying to learn together how to live like family. And that was scary for me, honestly, guys, as a pastor. Because as a pastor in the religious south... We're supposed to have it all together, right? We are. Like, I'm supposed to be way more spiritual and way further down the road than any of the rest of you. That's why some of you, if I make a mistake, you hold bitterness against me. You expect so much, right? From, I mean, that's just, it's just ingrained in us, right? As pastors, we have to get it right all the time or I'm going to go try to find somewhere else. And I knew that whenever I got involved in community, when I get in the lives of others, you know what I knew would happen? People would see that sometimes I'm melancholy. 
They would see that sometimes I get frustrated easily. They see that I'm not always a great husband, that I'm not always a great father, that sometimes my kids act like midget demons, right? Like I knew that you would see that. And at times that's been difficult and it's been a little scary, but listen, I'm telling you, it's been also really beautiful. And as a result of being in community with other people, God has grown me and I've experienced more freedom and more fullness as a result of knowing others and being known by others. So again, the call is simple this morning. If you're, if you're not in a missional community, get involved in a missional community. Get involved in one. Step out of the shadows. Do something courageous. Go, and here's what I'm going to do. We're going to try to make it really easy for you from here on out. Rather than just me being at the welcome table each week, if you're a guest, this is for you. We're going to have a representative from each missional community that's going to be behind the welcome table or in that area. They're going to have little name tags on. It's going to say like Labor Park or, or Bell Mead Nursing Home or whatever on their name tag. So you can look, and if you recognize that person, you're like, oh, I've talked to them. I like them. Then maybe go check out their MC. Or if you see on their name tag, there's a certain mission, like, oh, the nursing home. I'm actually like, that gets me excited. I think I'm going to go talk to them about how they're blessing the nursing home. Go up to them. They're going to have a little card where you can fill out some information about yourself, right? And they'll be in contact with you. And then what you can do at that point, if you want, you can check out different missional communities. Sometimes people go to one MC and that's enough. They're like, this is the one for me. Sometimes people need to visit multiple missional communities. That's fine too. But just know this in your search for an MC, MCs, for those of you that are in one, are there any perfect missional communities out there? No. No, right? Put your hand down, Zach. (laughs) No, because they're all filled with a bunch of imperfect sinners like me. So they're not going to be perfect, but listen, by God's design, this is how he says we are going to experience the life he's created us to experience. Now, for the majority of you in here, you're in a missional community right now. For the majority of you. In fact, by the way, we have more people in the missional community than we have than even come regularly on a Sunday morning. So we have a lot of people in the missional community. So the question is for you is like, what in the world does the sermon have to do with me? Um, here's what I would say for you. I have a word for you. Quickly. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, I don't have time to read it. Go look at it earlier. It's Jesus' first sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think he was actually on a mountain, but that's the title of the... It's in, it's in your Bible. And... Nearly the majority of the sermon is filled with Jesus telling you how to respond to people who are messy, who are hard to get along with, who live chaotic lives and are frustrating. That's almost the entire sermon. He's telling you how to respond to those kind of people. Why do you think that is? I'll tell you, because Jesus knew on this side of heaven... You're going to be encountering people like that, not only outside the church, but inside the church for the rest of your life. Welcome to the church, y'all. Messy, hard, chaotic, frustrating, right? It's all of those things because we're all of those things. We're the church. And what Jesus says, if you are in the kingdom of God, if you are my child, you know how you respond to those people? With love. You don't leave. You stay. And you love them with an unconditional love just as I have loved you. You know why Jesus tells us to do this? Because in John 13, he says, It's by this the world will know you are my disciples. Jesus could have said anything he wanted right there. He could have said, Hey, you want the world to know you're my disciples? You want them to know that you're my children? Know your Bible really well and wow them with how many Bible verses you've memorized. He doesn't say that. 
He could have said, you want people to know you're really a Christian, that you're really my child? Live a really moral life. Never drink, never smoke, never cuss, never watch rated R movies, only listen to K-Love, right? Like, he could have said that. But yet, what did he say? Hey, church, you want people to know there's something different about you? Church, you want to reach a pagan culture that is continuing to decline right here in America? We're seeing this like church. You want people to know that you're my children, that the rumors of my love are actually more than rumors, but the reality, you want to know how to do that? He says it will not happen apart from you staying in community and loving one another as I have loved you despite everyone else's imperfections. That's how they're going to know something is different. And so here's the call. If you are in a missional community... Stay in a missional community. Yes, invite other people into a missional community. That's a great add-on as well. But stay in a missional community. The truth is, over the last four years, over four years, I've seen people come and go in missional communities. For a season, they come in. They're like, yes, we're all about community. Yes, we're all about the mission, whatever else. And then they pop out. And not every time, but a lot of times the reason I think that is is because people love the idea of community more than they love community. They love the idea of community, this unrealistic expectation that their community is literally going to be to them what only Jesus can be to them. And so what happens is they come into a missional community with these unrealistic expectations that everyone's going to love them perfectly and serve them and life's just going to immediately get so much better and when it doesn't happen, they hit the eject button. They leave. They go find another missional community or they just show find another church altogether. And I listen, if that's where you maybe are today, you're thinking about that, I'm telling you, as a result, I believe if you hit eject on community because it gets difficult, you will miss out on the life God has created you to experience. You will. You really, really will. When you think about relationships, whether it's dating, married life, friendship, the church, relationships go through five stages. I would say most of us never get to stage five. But there's five stages in relationships. The first stage, I'll put them on the screen for you, is infatuation. This is like when you first meet that person, you start dating them, right? And it's like, man, like you're awesome. I'm awesome. Let's be awesome together, right? That's infatuation. Like there's no flaws. Like literally you're perfect. It's incredible, right? Like that's the first stage. But eventually... You move into stage two. We all do. Apathy. Yeah, they're just another person. Right? Jared, uh, he's, he looked pretty cool on the outside, maybe. I don't know. Like, hey, whatever. But, like, now that I've got to know him, I've realized, like, he's a sinner just like everybody else. Right? His jokes aren't always that funny. And, and he's kind of annoying. He don't always love me really well or whatever. Right? We kind of get a little bit apathetic. Like, okay, we're going to go to another missional community meal where Jared's leading and we're going to eat and his kids are going to go insane and like he's going to teach and then we're going to go like, right? Just kind of get, you start getting a little apathetic about it. Ah, they're just another person. After stage two, stage three begins to happen in a relationship. I would say this is frustration and or fear. Now you're just starting to annoy me. Now that thing that I thought was actually kind of cute is, is <laughs> you got to stop now, right? <laughs> um, you're frustrating me. Maybe I'm even a little afraid of you. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like this is the stage, stage three. And, and a lot of times this is where people check out right here. 
But if you will continue forward, stage four happens, and that's the stage of acceptance. And what I mean by acceptance is this. you stop, Please listen. You stop accepting people for who you think they should be, and you accept them for who they really are. You stop accepting them for who you expected them to be, and you accept them for who they really are. I'm not saying you breeze over all their imperfections and sins, and you never talk about it, but you choose to love them in perfections and all. If that'll happen, you know what will begin to take place? Stage five, which is, and I think very few of us have experienced it. That's why we're constantly social media, just trying to find more and more. We experience healthy, life-giving relationships. Not perfect, but healthy, life-giving relationships. So here's what I want to ask you this morning. For those of you in the missional community, look at this. Which stage are you in? Which stage are you in? Because it's around stage two or stage three, the temptation will be to bail, to get a new MC or to get a new church to just check out. But listen to me, please. Guys, it's right there in stage two and especially stage three. Jesus wants to do some of his best work in your life. It's in stage three. You know what Jesus wants to do for you? He wants to show you your own selfishness. And he wants to begin to uproot that stuff. That's not only bleeding over in relationships with each other, but also in how you view parenting, your marriage, everything else. It is in stage three that Jesus wants to begin to free you up to serve others without expecting something in return. It's right here in stage three that Jesus, he wants to help you develop a more Christ-like character. He wants to build in you humility and a sense of gratitude and contentment in this life. And yet the majority of us, again, we never experience it simply because we don't stay put. Joseph Hellerman, in his book, When the Church Was a Family, writes this, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. Look at this, plain and simple, guys. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with a spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they can't seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from one soil to another soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience the lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. I've been at this for almost five years now. I've led four different missional communities. Any idealism that I had of missional communities have been crushed by now. Okay, I promise you. My wife will tell you that we have had seasons that have been really fun and seasons that have not been that fun. We've had seasons that have been where we feel like everybody in the MC is super passionate about Jesus and one another and seasons where it don't quite feel that way. Seasons where we feel like, man, like we're just like walking right along with them and seasons where we like, feel like we've got to pull people, you know? Seasons where we feel like we've been so loved and seasons we feel like, man, we weren't very loved at all very well in that. Any idealism, any, any idea that the, the missional community can be Jesus themselves to me, that's all been crushed. But listen to me. I believe more than ever, bef- ever before that it's in missional communities that we can experience the life God's created us to experience. I believe more than ever that if you were going to see the rumors of God's love and his grace and his mercy and his power and his compassion, all those things go from rumor to reality. It's going to happen when we're walking together, following others with others 
following Jesus together that we go with others who are on the same path. Yes, there are times where missional community is hard. Amen? It's messy, and it can be difficult. But look right at me, guys. Think about this for a second. Be logical. Have you ever got anything in your life worthwhile that came easy? Whether it's that perfect bod, your children, some sort of academic or athletic accomplishment, nothing in life that's worth having comes easy. In fact, if, you, if it is easy, it's probably not worth having. It's the way it is in the missional community. Community can be very difficult, but it can also be very, very, very beautiful. So if you're not in a missional community, again, call simple this morning. We're done. Call simple. Get involved in the missional community. If you're not involved in, or if you are involved in a missional community, stay in one. It's going to get frustrating at times, right? Sometimes it's going to seem kind of mundane, but stay in there. Stay connected. I'm telling you, as a result, you will begin to experience the life that God has created you to experience here on this earth. Now, here's what I want to do. As the band comes forward, maybe you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, okay, well, how do I find the motivation to do this? How do I just will myself into saying, okay, I'm going to step out. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to try to get committed and love others in community. And as always, the answer is the gospel. And specifically this week, what I want you to, to, to meditate on is the reality that Paul says in Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, I want you to remember that before God ever asked you to step into the lives of others, Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God stepped into your life. Before God ever asked you to love another messy sinner, God loved this messy sinner. And if we believe that and if we embrace that, that's the motivation to go and to love others. To remember today that before Jesus Christ ever asked you to put your life on the line for others, he did that for you.